0: I think Bob, uh, who did our reading this morning, has a little preacher in him. I noticed that preacher in him coming out when he said, just one more point, and, and then just, I was like, man, I like that guy. I can, yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't feel all alone on that one. Um, take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, and, and we're going to be in 1 John again as we continue working our way through the book. I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me um, to study and prepare my heart and uh, seek to understand the Word in such a way that I can deliver it uh, each week to you and, and um, teach and instruct and, and help. And so I trust that it's been a blessing to you. Uh, just on, on a personal note, I would ask that you guys be in prayer for me this week. I leave this afternoon to fly back to Nebraska. I'll be doing a funeral on Tuesday there of one of the um, dear ladies in our church. Our church that sent us here, and uh, one of the things that she said when we left was, is, "You have to come back and do my funeral." And so um, this Tuesday is is the funeral. And so pray that the Lord would give me traveling mercies. If you would, and in addition to that, just give me uh, boldness with the gospel and, uh, and uh, the people hearing uh, ears that they might hear and see and understand the truth. So uh, that's this afternoon. I'll be back on Wednesday. So your prayers are much appreciated in these areas just a reminder, I know we have several visitors here this morning, so I'm going to do a little bit of review over what we've been dealing with. First uh, John is written in, in such a way as to be, bring about evidence of a person's salvation. Um, there are certain things that are taught in detail in the book of 1 John that are meant to describe for us whether a person is a true believer or whether they're, or they're not a true believer. And, and within, within the context, what, what John does is he describes uh, about three things that are primary focuses in the book to show us these are evidences that should be present in your life if you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ. And what we want to remember about salvation, we want to never forget, is that salvation is a supernatural act of God. It's not something that we do, um, there's not a, a six step plan to becoming a Christian. There's not a two-step plan to becoming a Christian. There's not a one-step plan to becoming a Christian. Being a Christian is when God, in his sovereign grace, reaches down from heaven and saves our wretched souls, and he lifts us up out of the miry pit, and he sets our feet upon a rock, and when he does that, it's completely, entirely supernatural. It is all of him, and it is all of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved. It is all of God. It is, it is uh, beginning to end 100 and, 100%. Every piece of the salvation that you experienced and I experienced is God's working in our lives. And, and what it should do is it should bring us to a place of total humility, right? No pride in what God has done for us and, and absolute thankfulness for his amazing grace to be bestowed upon us. And we should often look and say, Lord, I don't know why, but I'm sure thankful that it's a reality. Amen. And then in addition to that, God says, Those whom I've saved, those whom I've made my own, I'm not just going to leave them in their current state, but I'm going to change them, transform them, and the and the transformation that I accomplish in their life is what's going to be evidence to them that they are truly my children and that's where galatians 5 the fruits of the spirit love joy peace and 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 all of the rest those are all evidences that a person has the spirit of god living within them remember this it's not impossible for someone to be religious and not have the spirit of god present in their life It's not impossible for someone to be very religious and not have God's spirit in them. But it is impossible for someone to have God's spirit within them and not have certain fruits that are a result of that. So this is what John writes about, 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might know that you have eternal life. These things, the book of 1 John is written to give you evidence, to give you proof that you are one of God's children. And and as I said last week, and I've said it over and over again, and we'll continue to say it throughout the study, listen, be honest with yourself. As we go through this study, don't let yourself be deceived by by the devil, by selfish pride that says to you that you're okay, let the power of God through his word penetrate our hardened hearts to, to see where we're, at, where we're at spiritually so that then we can get on our knees before a holy and just God and plead with him for mercy. And, and we do serve a merciful God, don't we? We do serve a gracious God, and, and he will give mercy and grace to those who, who ask for it, to those who recognize their need for it. So there are, there are I believe, three main Evidence is in the book of 1 John. We've looked at one, and that was that a person who is truly a convert of Christ loves righteousness. They pursue righteousness. It doesn't mean that they are always perfectly righteous, right? We can all say amen to that, right? Because none of us would be saved if that were the reality. But, but there's something about our heart, there's something about my heart that has been changed in regards to how I view righteousness, uh, how I view the law. Again, I illustrate it this way. It's almost like a parent who grows up with... I grew up with certain rules in my home, right? And I, when, I, when I viewed those rules when I was 15 years old, I view all those rules as being boundaries, right? Things that mom and dad wanted to take away all my fun from me. They were trying to hinder me from enjoying life. And now I have all of those same rules for my own kids, Right? So I have actually come to appreciate the rules that my parents had towards me that I was completely rebellious against initially, but now because I understand them as a parent, I want those rules for my own kids. The same principle applies in, spiritual, in the spiritual realm. When we are unbelievers, we look at God's law, and what do we say? It's restrictive. God's trying to keep us from having any fun. God's trying to take away everything that, that is Pleasurable from us. That's how we view God's law, right? But when we are converted, it's like we become mature. And now we see God's law and we say, man, I'm embracing that. I need that. That is so significant and so important to my daily Christian life. And we treasure it. It doesn't mean that we don't fall every single day, but we do treasure and value God's law as a convert. We see it differently because God's Spirit has come to live within our hearts. And that's the first evidence that we have that we are God's children. Remember, the first and the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we also love the things that God loves. And one of those is, is He loves righteousness. I'll tell you this from personal experience. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. I made a profession of faith when I was five. I made a profession of faith when I was six. But I lived in outright, utter sin in my teenage years and didn't even realize I was lost until I was about 19 years old. And what I finally did is I looked at myself and I said, you're a lost man. I finally became honest with myself. I finally realized that all of the things that I had trusted in and hoped in and and done for God were worthless because I was in utter sin in my heart. And God exposed that about me and it was at that moment that my whole life changed because no longer was I focused on myself to accomplish salvation, but now I was focused on what Jesus had done to accomplish salvation for me. It was an amazing transformation, but it, but it honestly, it took God bringing me to my knees through, through sin, horrible sin that had consumed me, but I was still a, I was still a Christian, right? That's where, that's where a lot of people are today. They're living in total outright sin, rebellion against God, total rebellion against God, but yet they are saved. Listen, we need to listen to our works. We need to listen to our heart to see where we're at. If the pursuit of our life is always unrighteousness, if we love unrighteousness and we love sin, there's something wrong, not with what we, there's something not wrong with our actions, but there's something wrong with our pursuits and our desires. The second um, evidence that, that uh, John gives us is love, loving others. He says, loving others is an evidence that you, that you love God. He, he says in 1 John chapter number 4, he says, if you, don't, if you don't love, you don't even know God. If you don't love, you don't even know God because God is love. In, in other words, we can, we can even turn that statement around and say this, if you know God rightly, you will you will love. We, we read it in Matthew 5 this morning, right? Not just love our friends and our neighbors, but love our enemies. And truly, one of the great tests of a person's salvation is not whether or not they love their wife or their children, but it's whether or not they love somebody who wants to harm them. That, is, that, is, that brings it down to where it has to be spiritual. There, there's nothing carnal or natural about loving your enemy but there is something spiritual about it. Folks, we, we, we have enough hate in this world. We have enough hate in this world that we as Christians have been set apart, right? Set apart, sanctified. We have been set apart to be people of who love, not people who hate. We have been set apart to be a people who get along. Can I get an amen? Amen. Seriously, we have been set apart to be a people who get along. So when the world is in all of its chaos and fighting and wars everywhere, the people in the world can look and say, look, the church is getting along. What is truly sad is that on many fronts, the church is worse than the world when it comes to getting along. Maybe I just need to move on past this portion of the sermon I'm getting a lot of blank stares here. It's like, okay. It's true, though, isn't it? In so many ways, the church, people look at the church as a place of conflict. The church is never to be a place of conflict. It's to be a place of unity. It's to be a place where people serve each other. They don't serve their own needs and their own desires, which is what causes these conflicts. James 4, where do wars and fightings come from? It's when people seek to satisfy themselves. When we learn to love others, when we learn to put others first, to put their desires and their needs above our needs and our desires, that's when we become the church. The church is not about this building. I'm thankful for the building that we sit in, but this is not, this, this church is about the Holy Spirit of God dwelling people and uniting them together to do a great work. That's what this church is about. It's not about where we dwell. It's about what we do. So we're to love each other. He, he, here he says in his text, and we're just going to work through this um, for, the, for the next few minutes. Um, verse number Beginning in verse number 16, we'll, we'll read 16 through 18. He says, by this we know love. So in other words, we, we, we know what love is. We have a, a definition of love by what John is about to teach us, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes up his bowels or his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So I want to do a little bit of review this morning based upon what we looked at last week, just very quickly. Number one, our first thought was, what is love? The Bible tells us here, the Greek word for know is gnosko, and it's in the prolonged form. It means that we grow to, to, to know, or we're growing in knowing God. And in other words, the, the process of loving is a process that is always growing as we know or grow to know the person, we grow to know Christ, and because we grow to know Christ, we grow to love others. So every day, as we grow to know Christ through His Word, we also be, ought to be growing to love others. It's a, it's a process that we go through. We study God's Word, we know Christ, we embrace what Christ has done for us, and because of that, we, we grow in loving others. Honestly, the more we can love others, and know Christ and what he has done for us, the sacrifice that he made for us, the manifestation, Romans 5 and verse 8, of God's love for us was Christ going to the cross, right? The more we can know that, the more we can see that, the more we can embrace that, the more we will have a a desire to love people. So love is growing in love is, is a process of growing in knowing. Number two, it was... It, knowing love is in a person. It is not just growing to know necessarily the person that we love, because sometimes we, the more we know about people, especially our enemies, we don't love them. It's about growing and knowing Christ. Love, true love, is found in a person. It is found in Jesus Christ. Love defined was the fact that the word here is used is agape in the Greek. It just means... Um, it's a love of choice. It's a love of, that is decisive. It's a love that is persistent. It is a love that constantly pursues the well being of the other person. And the love, the agape love, is never built around the response that it gets. Okay? It has nothing to do with the recipient at all. Agape love has everything to do with the one who is giving it. So when God calls us to love, Others, he doesn't call, to, call us to love others who love us. He calls us to love others, period. Period. Matter of fact, he says in, in, in the same context, he says that we, if we know God, we will love. Just period. We will love. It will be the nature of our hearts. We will be a loving people because we know what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then we looked at love displayed. Obviously, Christ was the main main displayer of God's love for us. He was the essence of God's love. Um, So that is what is love. The the second thing that we looked at was why do we love? Why do we love? Or or, um, what what is the main motive for our love? And we see this in... Uh, the second phrase of the, of, the, of the text, he says that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's interesting because you could, actually, uh, you could actually take the Greek word that's used for ought and you could say this, you could say it this way, for we owe to lay down our lives for the brothers. We owe to lay down, we owe to love other people. We owe, it's, it's a debt that we have. And the debt that we have is not based upon something that they have done for us, but the debt that we have to love other people is based upon something that God has done for us. Remember this. I said this last week. Grace is not something that's ever meant to be paid back. Grace is something that's meant to be paid forward. In other words, god you, you cannot pay God's grace back, right? Because it, it, it's accumulating every single day. The fact that I woke up this morning was God's grace, That I'm standing here before you, God's grace. That you're here, God's grace. God's grace is compiling all of the time in our lives. True? He doesn't even want us to try to pay it back. Because if we try to pay it back, then it's no longer grace, right? He just wants us to receive it. He just wants us to embrace it, to love the grace that God has shown to us. And then he wants to make sure that we share it with other people that we bless other people with the grace that God has given us. Listen to these verses. The Bible says in Romans 13 and verse eight, owe no one anything except to, anybody know? Except to love one another. Owe no one anything, meaning have, have no debt, financial debt, business, whatever, have no debt, but the, but the debt that is allowed The debt that is allowed, that God says is okay, is the debt of love. It is a debt to loving other people. And the reason why we're allowed to have that debt is because that debt is always going to be there. It is a constant debt in every individual Christian's life. You are indebted to loving other people. And you're not indebted to them, but you are indebted to him. Amen? We love other people because of what God has done for us, and we love other people because of the fact that God continues to do things for us. So we love, we owe a debt of love. Romans 1 and verse 14 and 15 says, "I am under obligation, Paul speaking here, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul understood that he was indebted to everyone, that the gospel that he had received was such an extraordinary act of God's grace and God's mercy in his life. He totally did not deserve it. He was not worthy of it. He did not earn it. There was nothing that he did to get it, right? You remember the story of, uh, of Paul being struck down right off of his animal and light shine and he's blind and, and he gets saved, and all of those things were God's work in his life, and here's what Paul understood by all of that. I owe that to everybody else. I owe everybody the same to hear the same gospel that God spoke to me. And listen, folks, the love that God has shown you this morning, you, you owe it to other people to show them that same love. God has poured out into your life unearned, unmerited favor, not so that you could somehow work it off, but so that you could pass it on, so that you could give it to others. I think it's interesting. I, I, this is something that's become a part of my prayer life, and um, I remember how the apostles, the Lord said that the people noticed that the apostles had been with Him, and I just that's something that has just struck me. I wonder if people look at me and say, he's been with the Lord. He's been with the Lord. What what an extraordinary testimony of the disciples. Not that they they were wise or they were talented or they were significant or they were, look at that apostle's success, but, but here's their testimony that they have been with the Lord. Ephesians 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ, or because God in Christ hath forgiven you. And then 1 John 4, verse 11 and 12 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, there it is again, we owe to love one another. Why do we love people? We love people because of what God has done for us. We love people because God loved us. We love people because God cared for us. We love people because God sent someone into our world to preach the gospel to us, right? We love people because of what God does for us. We we have a debt that we can never repay, but we have a debt that we can bless others. Encourage others and lift others up. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. You know what's interesting? If you study the life of the apostles, they, they, the, the apostles were made rich by the Lord, amen? Do you believe that? Okay, that didn't mean that their wallets were full, though, did it? But you know what's amazing about the apostles? Did... Did the apostles take and embrace their riches as being for them? Or did they take the riches that God gave them and then give up their lives to give the riches to others? Is that what the apostles did? Paul said that death is working in me, but life is working in you. So, so Paul, Romans chapter number 8, the Bible says that The disciples said that we are being killed all the day long. We are as counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You see, all of the riches that the apostles received from Jesus Christ because of Christ, because of God's grace and love, they didn't receive them so that they could embrace them, so that they could be significant or important or wealthy. They embraced them so that they could share them to give them out to others. Why do we love? Because of what God has loved, because of how God has loved us. Who do we love was another thing we looked at last week and we love everyone from neighbors to family members to enemies. We're called to love everyone. And and our love for everyone is not the same. It's some we love our families at one level, we love our kids at one level, we love our neighbors at one level, we love but we are called to love everyone. This morning, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about how do we love. Just, just a few minutes here, four things very quickly. How do, we, how do we love people rightly? How do we love people rightly? How do we be loving people? He says, he says four things in our text. He says, first of all, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, that we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, and he uses terminology here that's very de- descriptive of sacrifice, somebody laying down their lives. The, the picture is, 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 is a sacrifice that was carried into the Holy of Holies, placed on the mercy seat of the Lord, and offered up to the Lord. That, that Jesus Christ laid down his life. He, he sacrificed, he gave up his life as a sacrifice for our benefit, Right? So the same picture he, he uses to describe the sacrifice of Christ, of, of his life being laid down for our benefit, he then, immediately after that, calls us to the same sacrifice that he made on our behalf. In other words, he tells us now, I want you to give up your life as a sacrifice for other people. I want your life to become an offering to God for the benefit and the blessing of other people. Jesus' life was, sacrifice was an offering to God. It wasn't an offering to us. Jesus Christ made a sacrifice to God that benefited us, right? Our lives are called to be a sacrifice to God that benefits... That's, a big, that's, a big, that's an important picture right there. Because we're not making a sacrifice to people. We're making a sacrifice... For people. We're making a sacrifice to God. So we're to lay down our lives. We're to be, the first one is just to be a sacrifice. To be a sacrifice for others. John chapter number 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, I'm going to just turn there. I don't want to misquote it. You're probably familiar with it. John chapter number 10. You're welcome to turn there with me. The Bible says in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, or, or I lay my life down willingly. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ laid his life down willingly. He, he was a willing sacrifice for our sins, for our benefits. And he calls us to be that same willing sacrifice. Romans chapter number 12 and verse one, the Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a, a living sacrifice. And he doesn't say your spirits. and He doesn't say your souls. He says, I beseech you. I challenge you. I call you. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And what's amazing about that, and Jason and I were talking about this this weekend at a conference, that if you go down through the text at the very end, the chapter, beginning in about verse number 10, it begins to unpack how we're to love each other, how we're, to, how we're to care for each other, how we're to treat each other in the church and, and, and be the church. He says in in that context, I'm going to turn there. If you want to turn there with me, Romans chapter number 12. He says in verse number nine, let love be genuine. Abhor or hate that which is evil and hold fast to that which is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Bless, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. And you can read the rest of the chapter. It just continues to expound it. But what is he saying? He's saying, Romans 12 and verse 1, let your bodies be a living sacrifice. Give your life up for the benefit and the blessings of others. And it's not because you have to. But listen, folks, as more we embrace what Christ has done for us, the more we embrace that Christ gave up his life for us, the more uh, not just dutifully do we have to do that, but we get to do it willingly. It becomes a treasure of our heart. Because of what Christ has done for us, we get to give up our lives for other people. Isn't that good? We want to be Christ-like, right? I think some people want to be Christ-like before he came to the earth. (laughs) We'll we'll take the Christ-like who was in heaven with all the riches, and we don't want to have the Christ-likeness that came to this earth and actually lived a very humble life, didn't he? Very humble life, died. He, he died a death where he was falsely accused. He was, things were said, I know we all love this, right? Things were said about him that were totally untrue. And he spent the last three of his years, years of his life defending himself, didn't he? Not at all. He answered not a word. And then he says, this is what I'm calling you to. You want to be a Christian? This is what I'm calling you to. The next life is going to be great. But this life is going to be sacrifice. You're giving up your life for others. This is what my church is about. This is what my people is about. This is what it's about. I think sometimes we present such a poor perspective of what it means to be a christian that we draw people into a a false christianity if they really knew what it meant to be a christian they wouldn't want it at all but it's so rewarding isn't it it's such a blessing he says hey i laid down my life for you now i want you to lay down your life for other people I want you to give your life as a sacrifice for the blessing and benefits of others. So that's the first one. Number two, he says, he goes on to say, and if anyone has the world's goods, it means a, a means of life, a means of living. It's kind of like a, a job, if you would. If you would. The, the idea of the word is, is if, any, if anybody has a job and sees his brother without a job, Okay, if anybody has a job and sees somebody without a job or sees somebody in need um, without employment would be a a very proper interpretation of that word. And he closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? So he says, secondly, when somebody has a need, we are to be sharing. And I use the word sharing, I'm using all S's. So sacrifice and sharing, We're, we're to give to them to take care of their needs. Now you'll notice in the text, the emphasis is on physical things. If, somebody has, if you see somebody who is in need and you close up your heart to them, notice what he says, he doesn't say close up your wallet. Do you know what closes up before we close up our wallet? Do you know what's more insignificant when we see somebody who is hurting or needy? What isn't significant is that you close up your wallet, but what is significant is that you just closed your heart to them. Imagine yourself for a moment, the day before you got saved, and the sin that you were involved in, and imagine Jesus Christ walking down the road of your life and saying, you know something, I'm going to close up my heart towards you. He didn't do it, did he? And what he says to us is, if you see someone in need and you close up your heart to them, there's something wrong with your heart. We're to share, we're to give. Acts chapter number two, they brought all of their funds together and they shared them so that no one was lacking, no one was in need. Second Corinthians chapter number eight and nine, when you get some time, I would encourage you to read this. This text is so powerful. He talks about bringing money into the house of God to, to make a collection. So, and he says this, when you give, let it be such a way that there's an equality that everybody is giving which I think is where the tithe becomes significant, where everybody's giving an equality. But he says this, when all the giving has been done, let those who have much have nothing left over and let those who have little have no lack. I know, I know we don't really believe that to be truth, but that is what God's word says. First Corinthians chapter number 16 says it this way, that on the first day of the week we're to bring our tithes, our offerings, our giving into the house of God. And here's what Paul says to the church. He says, so that when there is a need, there is no need for a collection. You ever heard of special offerings? Do you know why we give special offerings? Do you know why we take up special offerings? Because there's no money in the storehouse. What Paul says is, is give faithfully to the Lord. Give faithfully each week and let the storehouse build up. And then I'll send people along the way that need something and there'll be no need for a special offering for the needy because there'll be plenty in the storehouse. James 2, verse 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed of the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is is worthless. It's dead. Amen. It's true. I mean, listen, folks. These are not my words. I'm telling you exactly what God's word says. So, number one, we need to be a sacrifice for others. Number two, we need to be sharing. We need to be sh- not. We need to be. We get to be. You've been left in this world to share with others. You've been not even left. You've been planted by God, to be a blessing to other people who don't have the same blessings that you do. And when you realize that everything that you have was a gift from God, then you have no problem sharing with other people. Number three, sweat. He says at the end of the verse, he says this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, The word word here is the idea of knowledge, understanding. Don't just love because you understand it. And don't just love in your talk, in your communications. And I I think it's true, I would be accurate to say that, that John is not saying don't understand love and don't tell people you love them. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying don't only do that. But make sure you love in deed and in truth. Two very simple things. The Greek word that we, where we get our word deed from is the word ergon. It just simply means toil. It means to work. It means to labor. Loving people is not always the easiest thing to do. Giving to people is not always the easiest thing to do. Sacrificing your life for people is not always the easiest thing to do. But that's what we're called to. We're called to work, to labor, to sweat. To sweat to do what God has called us to do. Isn't it interesting? You go back to Genesis chapter number 1. Adam was in the garden, he was caring for the garden, and what was the one thing that God changed about Adam's service? That now you will do it by the sweat of your brow. We're called to love people, and he says this, you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But we're called to toil and get it done. Matthew 7, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew chapter number 7. Listen to what the Lord says here. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the great, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's difficult. It's hard, it's toilsome. To do the right thing, folks, is hard but it's what we're called to do. The last thing that he says is we see sacrifice and sharing and then sweat, to the work that we're supposed to do in the process. And the last thing is sincerity. He uses the word truth here. It, means, it literally means that it is beyond the surface. Listen, if you walk by somebody who is in need, and I'm just going to use a homeless person as an example because it just, this is what comes to mind. If you, walk, if you walk by a homeless person with a jar in their hands and you throw a $1,000 bill in there, right, and you don't love them, you have benefited them, but you have not done what God has called you to do. It has to go beyond just the obedient work that you perform. It has to be something that is flowing from your passion for God and because of that, your passion for that person. And you might only give them a quarter. You say, you know something? That's all I've got. You might not even be able to give them anything. But here's the key. You know your heart. How do you feel when you walk by a homeless person? You don't, I'm not saying give them a dime. I'm, I'm not preaching that. I'm saying this. How do you feel in your heart towards them? Or somebody who was consumed by some addiction? who is totally, just completely lost. What does your heart tell you? I'm afraid, folks, that we've lost sight of who we were before we were saved. The hardest thing in my life, growing up in a Christian home with a pastor as a dad, the hardest thing in my life was to come to realize that I was not good enough to enter into God's kingdom. And that... I was totally depraved, just like the drunk, just like the drug addict, just like the person caught living in a... I was no better than any of them. I was the least, as Paul says, of all the saints. It has to go beyond the action, and it has to enter into your heart. You see, Pastor John, I definitely do not feel that. How do you get it? How do you get something that God has to gift you? The answer is simple. You ask for it, and you trust. And when you walk by that person who was totally gone, and you don't feel that inside of you, you know what you do? You ask for it, you repent of what you've done, you ask for it, and you trust. And it's a cycle until God decides to bless you with it. You say, well, why wouldn't God just bless me with it at that moment? I'll tell you why. Because you might not be ready. God might have other things to teach you along the way. But what do you do? You repent, you ask for it, and you trust. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 6, bondservants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling from a sincere heart. As you would the Lord, not in the way of the eye service as people pleasers, but as bond service of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So we love people. Listen, folks, we are Christians. We are called. We have been left here. We have been planted to love people. Like Jesus Christ has loved us, we're to love others. I want to close, if you would, in Psalm the 23rd Psalm, many of us know this psalm by heart, and it's such a precious psalm to us. I want to challenge your thinking on it. Just in closing, you know the psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And just stop there. I'll just think about and treasure for a moment all of the things that God is for us. Not that God does for us, but all of the things that God is for us. It is so amazing that because he is my shepherd, all of these things are true about me, right? I want want to challenge your thinking on the last verse. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, right? So here's how we always think about that. We always think of surely goodness and mercy chasing us, right? I, I, I will submit to you based upon the previous verses, goodness and mercy has caught us, right? Here's what I want you to think about. What are you leaving behind you? What are you leaving behind you? When you walk away from a situation or a circumstance, what is very close behind? Meaning, if somebody were following in your footsteps, what would they be getting? Can you say, surely goodness and mercy is following close behind me? Because all of the things that God has done for me, all of the blessings that God has done for me, all of God, uh, Shepherding in my life that it is leaving something behind me that is very good. If you've ever read the Shepherd Psalm by, uh, I think it's uh, Stephen Keller, if you've ever, ever read that book, he talks about how when sheep who are properly cared for leave a pasture, that pasture is so much better than when they got there. What do you think? Can you say? Can I say this morning that when I leave the presence of somebody, that I'm leaving behind me surely goodness and mercy. Listen, folks, this is what we're called to. This is what we're left here for. This is what we're planted to do, that people will look at us and say, that person has been with Christ. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so rich and full and powerful and life-changing. And I pray that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, Lord God, that they would feel and know in their hearts through the preaching of the word and the gospel that you you are love and that you are merciful and gracious and to understand and to know that they they are sinners and they do not deserve your kindness or your care. None of us even deserve to be here this morning. But Lord, by faith, might we embrace all of the wonderful works that you have done, the significance of your deity, the amazing work of your sacrifice in our place, and the um, promise that the Spirit of God can live within us and make us whole. And I pray that you would bring salvation to those. If there's some here this morning, Lord God, that are just struggling being loving, I pray that they would embrace what you have done for them, the love that you have shown them. And Lord God, that they would begin to see their lives as a ministry of that love. I pray your blessing upon your word this morning, that you would be glorified by the change that it creates in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name.